Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. Into this house we're born. Into this world we're thrown. All right. We continue with our Andrew Lamb collection of short stories with a story called Close to the Bone. Opening music by The Doors. Jim Morrison singing Riders on the Storm from the album L.A. Woman. This, this song is a bit uh, interesting in its connection with our story, uh, loose connections. But there is a certain pessimism, uh, realism, cynicism, I suppose you'd say, that Jim Morrison expresses in this song. Into this life we're thrown. Uh, it's a storm. And... Women, hold your man, let your children play, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. This connects in some ways with our narrator, whose journey is an interesting one in this story close to the bone. The narrator, from the very beginning, struggles uh, to, to get a sense of connection with his parents, with his family. He feels like an other, which is a bit of an irony, given our larger collection of stories, because really the other is the, the Vietnamese person in American society. That's how it's been communicated to us in, in, the, in the collection so far. But here, in this story, our narrator, Elliot, feels like an outsider in his own family. The story starts this way. Rain delayed Napoleon. He wanted, to ground, he wanted the ground to dry out a little before the attack. Wellington's army was over here on St. John, but they withstood repeated attacks. By nightfall, they counterattacked and drove the French from the field. There were heavy losses on all sides. This is a quote. It starts out the story with a quote from Eliot's dad, from the narrator's dad. He's quoting his dad. And then he goes on to say this. I already knew the story. It struck me then that not once had my father told me a fairy tale. He probably didn't know any. But war stories he told too often turning our dining room table into the battlefield, our spoons and chopsticks into battalions. Bowls into bases and hills. The Duke of Wellington was drunk. Napoleon was not. But there was nothing he could do. He was there against fate. Well, this is a lot of things I like about this story. A lot of things to like. Here at the at the get-go, at the get-go, you have a father who's being described by a son. The son is clearly wounded by this by this father. And the story goes on to explain why. Obviously, you know that. But there's some key elements here that Andrew Lamb reveals, or our narrator, I should say, reveals to us. He reveals the fact that his father told war stories, not fiction or fairy tales. Well, what's the difference? Well, there's some key differences here, obviously. One, uh, he's telling war stories. He's telling stories about battles that occurred on battlefields. Um, very clear, clear uh, details historical facts, movements of troops, uh, factual historical battles and conflicts. These are the things that his father's interested in. His father's not interested in, as it says, fairy tale, fairy tales. As he says, he probably didn't know any. Now, there's a couple ways we can look at this. His father is very much about the facts, bare bones, things are black and white. And his rendition, right, his, the way he handles history is very black and white. On the flip side, fiction, not black and white, especially fairy tales. 
Fairy tales full of mystery, full of intrigue, full of uncertain endings and um, wild and, and fantastical details. Reality is not what it seems in a fairy tale. Well, this idea at the beginning of the short story has an interesting kind of resonance throughout the short story because this young man, this narrator of ours, is a homosexual. He's a homosexual in a very traditional Vietnamese home. Now, that doesn't go well for him, as he explains, because his Vietnamese family sees things very black and white. We are Vietnamese. We work hard. We drive. We have a strong drive for success. Again, this is the narrator's tone and his um, understanding of his parents as he communicates to us. We Vietnamese, we are survival driven, he seems to suggest, or definitely says in this story. And thus, we are not homosexuals. Um, homosexuality, according to his uh, father's perspective, uh, is a luxury that we cannot afford. It is an, is an aberration. It is a sickness, as they describe, something that must be overcome. We Vietnamese, heterosexual. We are about procreation. We are about building families, structures that succeed, and so forth. And so you have this interesting tension between the artistic expression of the narrator who very much lives in a more fictional world that is more flexible, imaginative, uh, full of passionate dreams and, and, and free expression versus his parents, especially his dad, who is historical, black and white. So again, a key tension right out of the gates, history versus fiction, or um, you might say nonfiction versus fiction. Uh, you might say rigidity of history versus the flexibility of fiction. And that, that's kind of the one of the driving tensions that begins in the, here at the, the opening, but runs throughout the co course of the story. And where does our narrator um, finally end up? He has a conflict with his parents that really kind of culminates at the funeral of one of his dad's students. At the funeral, our narrator, Elliot, comes out. He announces his homosexuality. He announces the fact that he knows that he's not accepted for his homosexual expression or his, his, you know, his identity as a homosexual. Uh, but he explains that, that this is okay and he's going to be himself no matter what anyone says or does. And he encourages others to think in a similar way. This is a climactic moment because we don't know, you know what the family is going to do. And as it turns out, his family does reject him for this announcement. They feel very much shamed for his movement to express himself in conflict with them. They feel very much threatened and, and rejected by his outspoken um, words. We see, uh, let's see here, let me pull up the page for you. This is toward the very end where he goes, he drives his parents home and here we go. I drove my parents home. This is after the funeral. Father grunted. Mother sat in the back inside, her eyes hidden behind dark glasses. You made us lose face, father began. You mean I shamed you by being honest? Honest? Save your radical ideas. Why did you say that you are against the war and that he couldn't bring himself to say it? That what? Hmm. 
Madame Kai was there, mother said almost to herself in English. Tomorrow, everyone, they know we are hippies. I looked into the rearview mirror and snapped. You are as much a hippie as I am a straight Republican, mother. Huh, huh. Mother started crying. It wasn't clear whether it was because I was rude or because of what Madame Kai, little Saigon's biggest hot parleur, loudspeaker gossip, would be saying to her friends. No one spoke for the rest of the ride. So let's kind of look at this closely, again, in light of the opening, right? So you made us lose face. And then he considers what Elliot says, what the narrator says, <laughs> as being radical ideas, departing from tradition, expressing things that are out of line or outside of the traditional concepts of reality and life. And so by this, whether it be against the war or an expressing, an expressing his homosexual um, identity, these are considered radical because they are not traditional. And the father wants to keep things together in a very neat black and white system. You are Vietnamese, therefore you are straight. You are Vietnamese, therefore you are traditional and conservative. And you must fit into line. The narrator here rejects that. And the ending is fascinating. I, I've wrestled with this now for a while, wondering what our narr- or what our author is doing here, what he's setting up for us. And there's some various ways to think about this end. Um, one of the very, very important things, obviously, is the fact that um, his parents see him as a radical. They see him as wild and crazy, fantastical, passionate, romantic in his expressions. Again, pushing more toward that fiction, more toward the, the expressions of fiction that are, that are part of a, a more abstract dream world, whereas they are grounded in the realities and the truths of everyday um, struggle and opportunity. His father is an incredible success, obviously a very brilliant man. He has achieved many amazing things and continues to. Uh, he was He's bragging in part of this, of this story about how he was able to get his teaching credential and, and get a job as a teacher uh, and pass all the tests pretty rapidly uh, by just applying himself with discipline. And that's who his dad is, very disciplined, straightforward, traditional, and, and, and honorable in that way. The son, uh, Elliot, the narrator, his whole approach to life is much more fluid and flexible. Even his sexual identity, flexible. And this is not met with acceptance by his parents. He goes on in that same page there. I should have just dropped them off, driven home. I don't know why I stayed. Perhaps I was hoping to have it out with them, to revisit the old battlefields. Now that's where our story began. They began with quotes and with conversations taking place on their trip to Europe on the battlefields of both Normandy and other parts of Europe. He says he wants to revisit the old battlefields. And so it kind of brings light to where he was going with the beginning, right? These battlefields are different than the battles that his father was talking about. The ones his father is talking about are battlefields that really took place in history. Battle, physical, material battlefields, concrete. Uh, they're able to be understood and studied, charted on maps, spread out on the dining table and seen with uh, reenactments. What kind of battlefield is Elliot, our narrator, talking about? Oh, he's, he's talking about emotional battlefields. He's talking about battlefields of identity. And this is very abstract. 
Uh, this is very much n- very different from the battlefields that he's describing with Napoleon and the others. And why is that important? Well, he's describing his life. He's describing uh, his journey as one that involves a battle that he must fight. He wants to fight this battle. He wants to press forward. And, you know, I don't know if he's talking about winning a war, but he knows that he wants to fight to be himself. And that seems to me to be the essence of this. What kind of struggle does it take to fight to be ourselves, to to walk with integrity, to walk with integrity um, with ourselves and with others, to be truthful about who we are? He goes on to say, but now in my parents' living room, CNN, a prattle of empty heads and father outside by the pool practicing his heyong and mother chopping vegetables for dinner in the kitchen. I lost the will to fight. Instead, guilt plagued me and I felt sorry for changing my parents' status in their small world. That is an interesting statement. My question that I'd like to ask you guys is, should he feel guilty for that? Should he feel guilty for changing his parents' status in their small world? Should he have been more conscientious, more delicate, more gentle with his parents' reputation? In some ways, you could say yes. He was selfish uh, for just feeling like he needed to express himself in a context where his parent, where he drew his, his parents into a, into a situation that was really about him. On the flip side, though, you can kind of you can kind of uh, see where Elliot's coming from, where if he does not fight, if he does not battle against the pressure of norming, of, of being what his parents want him to be, if he doesn't push back on that, he will forever have to live under the pressure of their expectations. Now, I'm not... Uh, I'm not saying that what he's doing is right or wrong from a a greater kind of more 30,000 foot view of this story. We have a young man who is battling with certain desires, certain expressions that he wants to, to experiment with that he wants to understand. Uh, He wants to move in a direction that is contrary to where his parents want him to go. He's feeling cultural, social pressure. And what does he decide to do? Well, it seems to me that he decides to fight back. He decides to push into unknown territory in a way. And from a you know a, a literary standpoint, taking his actions symbolically, symbolically or from a representative standpoint, it's quite heroic. He he stands in the face of a lot of pressure to pressure to accommodate his parents, pressure to um, to live according to their standards, as opposed to his own. Instead, he finds his voice. He finds the courage to speak out. And he finds the courage to, to be himself. Uh, if you look at uh, the final page of the story, last two paragraphs, I was barely aware of what I was doing. I placed two bricks side by side and a third across the top. In the twilight, the breeze turned colder and the air smelled of petals and cut grass. I did not focus on breaking the brick. I did not take a stance. Interesting representative actions there. But before my hand descended, I heard Rye William admonishing me. Empathy should only go so far. Ethan, please. 
For God's sake, don't drink and drive your hand into bricks. I think I've been calling him Elliot this whole time. My apologies, Ethan. Elliot's the other character at the funeral. I could see blood drip onto grass. I could hear bones breaking. I resisted the urge to hurt myself and instead covered my face and wept. Part of me was rushing forward. Part of me needed to laugh at my own stupidity. I could break all my bones and there would be no full concord between my father and me. When I opened my mouth, perhaps to respond to William's imagined admonishment, I retched instead. And amid mother's rose bushes, I began to throw up bits and pieces of my inheritance. It's fascinating. Um, so let's, let's break this down here. Why does he stack the bricks? Well, in some ways, he's mimicking David and his own dad and kind of following in this way of wanting to fulfill his parents' desires, of wanting to impress, of wanting to um, live up to his parents' expectations, to fall in line and stacking the bricks, chopping them would make him uh, fulfill, would allow him to fulfill something that, that is of his father's dreaming. He was never able to finish Taekwondo when he was 16, when his father found out that he was homosexual. His father stopped teaching him Taekwondo. Uh, he rejected him because of that. And this, this idea of setting up the bricks and, and entering back into that, perhaps could be seen as his temptation to fall back into pleasing his parents and living for them. Well, he hears his friend William's voice. Empathy should only go so far. Don't drink and drive your hand into bricks. Um, that's an interesting phrase. Empathy should only go so far. Um, empathy, feeling and understanding another person's pain by entering into their situation in a way. More than sympathy, empathy seems to be an entering into someone else's struggle. But how far should empathy go? It's a great question. At what point does empathy become harmful for us? At what point does entering into someone else's struggles and living with their struggles with them become damaging for us? And that's a question that the story seems to ask. How far should empathy go? Here it seems, as he contemplates stepping back into this role as, as parent-pleasing son, he stops himself. He hears William's voice and he stops. He imagines the blood dripping out of the grass, the bones breaking and so forth. And so he resists the urge to do this act. And so he doesn't. He doesn't chop the brick after all. He stops. And instead, instead of entering in, instead of taking on, um, putting in himself, instead of adding to his journey uh, this parent-pleasing role, he wretches. He pukes up his inheritance. So instead of adding something to himself, he gives something up, right? His, his act of puking, his act of throwing up, retching, is an act of um, expulsion, right? In a way, and this is maybe taking it too far, but might as well. Um, in a way, uh, you can see this as an exorcism of sorts, right? Something is coming out of him. If you've ever seen movies about demonic possession, often people who are demon-possessed, in movies at least, I don't know if this is real or not, but they are shown as throwing up, right? As a demon comes out of them, this is a thing that's coming out of them and they throw up and that that that, that barf is kind of like a, a representative of or a symptom of them uh, losing the demon that was inside of them. Is that what's happening here? It seems that, that Ethan, our narrator, has made a choice. 
He's not going to take the role of son on, at least not parent-pleasing son anymore. Instead, involuntarily, because of that, he, he throws up. And what does he throw up? Bits and pieces of his inheritance. He throws up the opportunity to inherit money. He throws up the opportunity to please his parents once again. And instead, it would, it would seem to me, he enters into a new phase of life in which he will be himself, unapologetic and free.